Hi, this is Olivia Berkman and welcome to Balance Sheet. One silver lining of the COVID-19 crisis is the way companies have been forced to re-examine their approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And many of the best-in-class employee experience strategies boil down to a pretty simple concept. Listen to your employees. In this bonus episode, which is a recording of a live Q&A I did on rethinking work-life integration, global talent business leader Suzanne McAndrew and I explore how the COVID-19 crisis has forever changed the dialogue around DE&I, productivity, and mental health. Here's the conversation. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul McDonald, Senior Executive Director for Robert Half. I'd like to welcome you to FEI's Forward Thinking Series and today's session on Rethinking Work Life. First, I'd like to start by acknowledging International Women's Day, which is a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women and makes today's discussion on employee support and inclusion even more timely. Today, we'll be hearing from Suzanne on topics that are essential for businesses today. The pandemic has made companies rethink strategies and business operations, behavioral health support, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now the question is, what will these areas look like moving forward? As you listen in, I hope you garner some key takeaways that you can implement at your organization. Robert Half and Protivity, a wholly owned subsidiary of Robert Half, are proud to be sponsors of the year-long Forward Thinking series. As providers of staffing and consulting solutions, our goals are to help companies and leaders face the challenges of the future. We hope you find the discussions will help you and your organization prepare for what's next. Now over to you, Olivia. Thank you so much, Paul. Hi, everyone. I'm Olivia Berkman, Managing Editor of FEI Daily. Today, I will be speaking with Suzanne McAndrew, Global Talent Business Leader and Global LGBT Plus Inclusion Network Leader at Willis Towers Watson. Before I introduce Suzanne and um, tell you a little bit about WTW, please remember to register for the third session in the series, Rethinking Recruiting and Career Development. You can register for this one at financialexecutives.org slash events. So a little bit about WTW, they are a leading global advisory company that helps clients around the world turn risk into a path for growth. They design and deliver solutions that manage risk, optimize benefits, cultivate talent, and expand the power of capital to protect and strengthen institutions and individuals. So now with that, I'd like to introduce Suzanne. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me. And of course, happy International Women's Day. Thank you, Olivia, and thanks to everyone for joining us today. Happy International Women's Day to the women out there, as well as all of our allies out there. It's really a, a timely event on an important day. Well said. Suzanne, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your really interesting role at Wills Towers Watson. I'm glad you think it's interesting, so hopefully other people will. Just a little bit about me. Um, I always say my best titles are, are wife to Christine and mom to Aiden. I live in New York City in a um, community called East Harlem. That Willis Towers Watson 
I get to wear three hats. You you described uh, two of them, and and one of them I also hold near and dear to me. So I lead our global talent business. So that's the stuff we do for many of the clients on this call around the advice we give you, the data we bring, and the software that we stand up connected to the employee experience. The second thing it has really been an important part of my role as a business leader is really working with our Global Inclusion and Diversity Council, leading the LGBT plus uh, inclusion network around the world. And we will get into that, I'm sure, as we talk about inclusion and diversity throughout this discussion. And then the third hat is I'm still a consultant. So I work with large organizations around their human capital and employee experience strategy. And I spent a lot of my time um, just trying to figure out some of those big thorny problems around people. So, so, so it's a lot. And I feel very fortunate. You know, the th- three things that have stuck with me throughout my career, whether I've been on the corporate side or in the professional services side, is I've been able to have roles that have completely connected to my purpose. And my purpose is all about breaking through boundaries for people and organizations. And certainly 2020 put that to the test. I also look um, that I'm in the business of people. So I always look at people as such an important asset to the organization. And how do I work across the C-suite and with executives across, you know, enterprise functions, finance and HR to really power those ambitions uh, for both workers and and the company. And then last, what I love about my role and something that people think I'm crazy after last year is I just thrive on change and ambiguity. I really do think every day is different, the pace of change going so fast and the drive for innovation. And, And those are some of the things that get me excited about my role. I'm sure no day is like the other. So it sounds exciting. That's <laughs> uh, true. So as you mentioned, 2020 was certainly a very unique year in many ways. And we've changed the way we work. And there's increased attention, thankfully, to inclusion, equity and diversity and the intersection of work and life. What do you see as the impact of these changes on specifically on the employee experience? That's such a good question. And I love the way that you you talk about the intersections because I think 2020 was really all about that. And I, I know that we have people on this call today a lot from the finance part of the organization. And it was all about finance and HR working together, HR and technology working together. It was about, you know, just the business and humanitarian experience that started to really create new pathways to looking at the employee experience, things that that organizations have never contemplated before. So, you know, the first impact is sort of, you're going to say, no brainer, Suzanne, <laughs> duh. But, but the, the impact is that we have accelerated new ways of working that I think some organizations would have never thought possible before. You know, this, this flexibility and adaptability and technology and the way that work is getting done is creating spaces for certain workers where productivity has completely changed. This notion of remote and flexible working styles 
meals, which has also been a burden, by the way, for all those working parents out there. We know. We know there's going to be a crying child in the background someplace <laughs> along this uh, conversation, and um, we know it's been hard. I think that it's also accelerated in the new ways of working, the, the focus on how do we use digital tools and AI to drive work faster. And what we've figured out as we've looked back is that we talk about this reskilling and upskilling and things that we have to do to move organizations further and and we did it. So I would say accelerating new ways of working is is the first thing. The second thing is a move from well-being thought of as an HR program or uh, something in a vertical to well-being and resilience really being a platform for the entire organization and end-to-end horizontal that has become a top priority. We know from our data that 92% of employees are feeling anxiety from the coronavirus. And I'm sure that number is changing. It changes on a day-to-day. So the, the importance of well-being and resilience being really critical. So the third impact is how organizations, and I, I expect those in the finance function um, can appreciate this, are working with HR to rethink what the cost of their total rewards programs are. There's had to be a shift around flexibility in different ways of the way pay programs are structured or the way that certain investments are going into different programs like caregiving, for example, that have challenged um, that construct. And then the last one maybe I'll touch on is just this connection to purpose. So if you think about all the efforts of diversity, equity and inclusion, being, again, that horizontal, something owned by the the C-suite and the board and and everyone, that connection to purpose and culture has been really um, something that has been lifted to to another level. So does that resonate with you, Olivia? Absolutely. And and we're definitely going to get into, you know, mental health and burnout a little bit later. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And I'd like to know what are the factors, maybe a connection to purpose being one that contribute to what yeah. we might call a high performance employee experience? I mean, one place to start, I guess, is with all of us. Like if we start with a common definition of what an employee experience is and the way that we define it at Willis Towers Watson are the way, the sum of the touch points of the moments that matter between um, the employee and the employer, right? So, So it's not just one thing, it is the sum of those touch points. And if we all kind of step back and look at the common ground we face with the employee experience, we're coming up, at least in the U.S. and many people who are in other parts of the world were were here much longer on an odd anniversary of where that employee experience just automatically changed. And to me, that drove more conversation around, well, then what really matters to the employee experience? Because you can't do everything and everything right. And by the way, I know um, some people might be saying employee experience, that's another buzzword. Uh, But um, what we did at Willis Towers Watson is we did try to figure out what really matters to this high performing employee experience. So we went into our data and we looked at 
our employee engagement survey. So annually, we have about 10 million employees who take our surveys a year, 500 companies. And then we have a group of employers. It's about 40 employers who demonstrate both high financial performance and high employee engagement results. And what we found were some specific factors that these companies did better than anyone else. And when we looked at those, we could correlate that they outperformed their peers in terms of top line growth, bottom line productivity and return to shareholders. I'll try to explain this without a PowerPoint slide. You know, as consultants, maybe I should get to the whiteboard behind my uh, <laughs> behind me. It's not a real whiteboard, but there are 12 factors that we look at when it comes to employee experience that is high performing. And they're going to be some of these tangible and intangibles that you have to get comfortable with. At the very essential role, we call it the essentials. There are things that organizations need to do around understanding. So that's understanding the purpose, you know, understanding of core benefit programs, just the basics. Organization, understanding kind of where you fit in to the work that you do and what your contribution is. Security. So that's just making sure people can count on you for a paycheck for benefits, for healthcare benefits, for some of the basic things that you need for security. And the fourth is support. So those are the essentials. What we also found is that you have to recreate things that are points of emphasis. So as you build your employee experience that is high performing, you you have to bring in things like inclusion, which is number one. We'll get to more of that later. Voice. You know, are people able to express their voice, bring their authentic voice to contribute? Capability. Are you helping people build their capabilities in their in their job? And collaboration. Are you able to break boundaries, right? The, the lines in your organizations to get things done. And then at the very top of this, this view are what these high-performing companies did better than anyone else, we call the hallmarks of excellence. And those things are inspiration. Are you helping people understand their vision? So inspiration, drive. Are you showing people that that you as a company, you as a leader have ambition to drive things forward, to change? Growth, are people seeing themselves grow in your organization? And then trust. So trust is one that these high-performing organizations did better than anyone else. And as we look back on some of our data, you know, congratulations to all the leaders on this call. You have demonstrated you know, our data is coming up in um, the employee experience, the way employees envision or, or appreciate trust in your leadership and that inspiration, as well as some of the, the inclusion and voice attributes. So. Those are the 12 dimensions without a PowerPoint slide. It's a lot to take in. <laughs> that was pretty impressive, I have to say. Uh, the first stage was understanding. Is that right? Yes. How does that start? Like, in other words, how does a company go about getting to know their employees and, and then digging deeper to understand their purpose? It's a great question. One of the things I, I like to say to my clients is, are you listening to your employees? So I guess everybody out there on the line, ask yourself, well, are you listening to your employees? And if no, you better, 
um, because you can't guess what people are thinking. And if you are, think about how you're listening. Uh, I think what we found was, especially with um, all of the racial injustice going on and the toll on mental well-being, that we needed to help organizations both get a pulse, like a regular pulse on how people are doing through surveys and get to some of that employee sentiment. So stand up some virtual focus groups, um, which we did a ton of last year so that you can you can understand why people are, are reacting the way they do to the surveys and enclose that gap. So the understanding of the purpose is really trying to understand not just not the individual's purpose, but does the individual know how they can contribute to that organization? Do they understand how they can contribute? And um, what are some of the interventions that you can do as a company to build on that understanding? It could be as basic as understanding where your employee assistance program benefits sit on your website or as complex as understanding how do you get more inspired and connected to the company's mission in the community of giving back. So there's a wide range that you can get under through employee listening. That's great. That's, I think, very helpful. Before we move on, I want to go to our first polling question for the audience. Has your organization increased DEI efforts as a result of COVID-19 and the social justice movement? While we wait, Suzanne, we're going to talk a lot about inclusion today. Maybe you can start giving us a sense of how the, the COVID-19 crisis has really changed the dialogue around inclusion. Yeah, I'll be so interested what comes back in the poll. Mm -hmm. Our data, we went out and did a, a survey with board members and senior executives. And what we've seen is, is tremendous uptick in the focus of inclusion and diversity and a shared responsibility across the C-suite. So in that survey, we found 53% of organizations have accelerated their focus on inclusion and diversity, and 73% of those organizations have taken at least one action to improve their mm -hmm. focus on inclusion. So that's some real data that points to organizations either doing something or trying to do something around right. inclusion and diversity. What does our poll say? Okay, interesting. So 60% yes, about 40% no. Does that, do those numbers surprise you? I think it goes back to what I said before. So if it's the no, then why? You know, it might be those organizations have already been on their journey already. Those organizations might have had other priorities. But but that is a large portion of people out there who are saying their organization is doing something. So there is a movement, movement there. And that I think it's important because it affects not just what the HR organization is doing. It's impacting a lot across the culture and the leaders, how leaders are showing up. Now, before we move further into inclusion, although this is, of course, related, we had a question from the audience that I thought made sense to pose to you now. What are best practices for truly listening to employees? Your employee listening strategy, you know, these, these strategies have evolved 
over time. And so it's worth a reset on how you're listening to employees. Um, it used to be organizations, leading organizations would go out annually to listen to employees through big surveys. But what we found is that organizations need to develop a two-pronged approach. You need to have a continuous listening strategy and that continuous listening strategy needs to have both passive ways that you're listening and active ways that that you're listening. So let me start with the active ways because you'll probably be more comfortable with that because the passive ways get into a little big brother, right? The active ways are the ways that you are creating a regular pulse that can be distributed with the right frequency and flexibility across the employee life cycle. Uh, For one organization, for example, um, that I work with a large consumer goods company, they actually delegated that pulse during COVID to each geography, right? Because each geography was going through different challenges at different times. So rather than make it a big global machine all the time, there were very geographically focused pulses. One was just on how's work going. One was on well-being. One was on, you know, what what other support do you need? One was on work-life balance. So you're able to get a quick snapshot of um, that information. On your active listening strategy, you should also think about the right segmentation. Your managers out there are the center of everything. I think we're all managers. Raise your hand, you know, in some way or shape or form. How are you getting the pulse of how your managers are coping with helping your your employees cope with all the changes? Or, or how are your high potentials adapting to what's needed? Or, you know, we, we went to also different segments from a diversity and inclusion lens as well with a lot of different employers. So this, this pulse on active listening is important as well as um, stand up informal ways to listen. I love this with my clients. I'm like, there's no reason why you can't stand up a team's discussion and talk to people in real speak how they're doing or do some virtual focus groups. That's a tool we have that enables thousands of people to be on one platform and chat real time with that sentiment analysis. And then on the passive listening side, um, you should be very open to exploring the variety of different tools that are going to help you understand how people are operating and behaving. You know, for example, Microsoft Workplace Analytics, they have some great data on how people are managing their time. So I think you can start to get different patterns of places where people are struggling as you kind of combine those strategies into a continuous listening strategy. Great. I love that that question. And it was, of course, a great answer. And I love what you said. It's worth the reset. I'd love if you would share some examples. I know that you have already uh, of how organizations and maybe WTW in particular are addressing DE&I. During this rapid pace to do something with all the social injustice, I met with clients who, don't be embarrassed, who had nothing, who had zero, not even a vision statement on what they stand for when it comes to inclusion and diversity. Two other organizations who were far on the maturity curve who had business resource groups, who were, you know, really connecting their their diversity inclusion strategies to their business strategy. So it's okay to be anywhere on that spectrum, but without a point of view, 
you're left flat-footed. You're left with nothing to say as your employees look for that true north. So look at your strategy, whether you've had it three years, don't have one or have had it five years, and get a cross-functional group together. Get HR, not totally in the room, but HR by your side, but get business leaders to co-own it and managers and employee and business resource groups to help you build out that strategy. The second is taking a look across that employee experience. If you think about the employee life cycle from how you recruit people to onboard them, to develop them, to promote them, to pay them, etc. Organizations are taking a look at the equitable programs and policies across that space. So, you, you know, we've heard a lot about pay equity, certainly, that also comes to benefits, that also comes to different, different groups that you may not have thought of, like caregivers. Take a look at your pay and hiring and promotion practices. Are they up to date? Are your job descriptions up to date? There's a lot of, I would call it, you know, quick wins that you could do. It might sound administrative, but to update those programs and policies is going to be key because you can have the strategy, but if it it doesn't actually happen in practice, they fall down. The third thing I've seen that you could do is really, really commit to some bold actions. And I'll get to that with what we did at Willis Towers Watson in a minute. And then I'll just say employee listening. So by nature, if you do nothing else, if you take away nothing else from this conversation, you know, step up some employee listening with your with your people, even if it's with your direct teams on how you're doing, because you can create some change there. So for Willis Towers Watson, we're very fortunate because we've been on an inclusion and diversity journey for, for some time now. I would say it's probably six or seven years. And, um, you know, we've learned that you have to, you know, do the old Eric Reese, uh, you know, startup way, you know, you have to dream big, start small and scale. And that's how we've stood up our inclusion and diversity strategy over the years. With everything going on with Black Lives Matter, we were able to come together rapidly as a global inclusion and diversity council and locally, like geographically, with our multicultural inclusion network to go further faster. We also were able to combine, like I combined Pride Month in June with a lot of activity related to the multicultural inclusion network. So the intersectionality uh, and the importance of the topic became key. And what we did were um, some basic things. Everybody could do this. We started first with a series called Let's Talk About Race. And we brought this series out to colleagues and clients. And in a matter of uh, weeks, actually, we engaged 11,000 colleagues around the world in a dialogue and storytelling. We, we put the slides down. We put the cameras on. We gave people the psychological safety to tell their story and to educate us, to help all of us to listen to what it felt like to be in their shoes. We also, it's a business um, part of what we do. So we brought that to clients. So we found forums where clients would share how they're talking about race. And we brought that forum externally. And um, that was an important step in, in creating the change we wanted. The next thing we did is we, we had geographies develop their own business action plans. And this is very geographically driven. 
because of the culture by each geography. And they had three parts to them. So our business action plans were focused on hiring, what we were going to do differently, a look at job descriptions, expanding our networks with different groups, internships, you know, scholarships, development. We made bold moves to really look at the development of our Black and African-American colleagues. We developed mentorship and reverse mentorship programs with our operating committee. So all colleagues at every key levels also each have a development plan in place for them. And we had that done in 30 days. And then the third thing that we're committed to is culture change. And culture is a journey. It is it is not something you can flip the switch on. It doesn't come overnight. So we are leveraging and improving some things we had already done on unconscious bias training, but we're going further on some of the training and awareness that we'll be pulling through the culture. And then I guess the last thing is um, you have to think about your your inclusion and diversity strategy in terms of what you're standing for externally. And I think we saw a lot of that through organizations. So we've made some commitments externally, for example, working with the World Economic Forum, Racial Justice Business Initiative and, and some others to make progress. On that note of psychological safety, we had a comment from an audience member uh, who said, no company I have heard of cared anything about what we thought or were going through. They just wanted the work done. And there was much overtime and no one cared. So reading that, obviously, that's very sad. And I truly hope, you know, that the silver lining of this pandemic is that we're, we're humanizing our fellow employees. So that is sad to read. I would like us to move into the mental health area. I'm going to move into our next polling question, which is related. Has your organization established or planned to establish a company-wide behavioral health strategy or action plan? Suzanne, a question from the audience. Another one was, how are you seeing the wide range of back to the office approaches impacting productivity, anxiety, and mental health? Maybe some Mm -hmm. thoughts on that while we wait for everybody to to choose their answers here. Look, it's all over the place, the back to office approaches. The first thing we see from our employers that we survey is they're most concerned about safety. And then there are still a wide range of opinions on, you know, has flexible work or remote work, you know, worsened productivity. I think for the most part, when we um, pull together, you know, our employer groups and our research, we're seeing most organizations that we talk to, they expect their remote work in their companies to double um, and to stay. A lot of companies will, will stay remote for some time. At the same time, organizations are trying to look at different hybrid models because there are certain organizations like one consumer products organization I'm working with who, you know, has a product like a lipstick um, that, you know, they feel like people need to be in the office to touch and feel and really collaborate more with. So there is a wide range. I'll be curious what the, the poll says. And certainly I have some other thoughts on that, but it's, it's kind of all over the place, to be honest. Okay. So the majority 64.8% said no, uh, that their companies are, have not established or, and are not planning to establish company-wide behavioral health strategy or action plan. Does that surprise you, Suzanne? It, 
It doesn't surprise me because I think there's a lot of companies that haven't formally established it. And yet I will say that it is something that we're going to see more of over the coming year. The struggle for employees, like we heard from that one comment, it, it, it's real. You know, I mentioned before, 92% of the employees in some of our surveys are, are having general anxiety. There are, back to your productivity question, 70% have distractions of work. And that is not because they're remote working. It's because of everything they're balancing on the outside and that's hard. And, you know, another 61% have financial worries. So what we're seeing organizations do this year, so maybe they haven't done it yet in your organization, is take a new look at their well-being programs. When we look at well-being in four dimensions. So it's the, of course the physical well-being, which is important, and it's the financial well-being, which is important, which we hear a lot about and companies put a lot of money into, right? But the, the the two other areas that companies are going to be investing more in are is social well-being, because we know that some of the mental health um, issues happening right now are related to social disconnections that people are feeling. And then the other one is emotional well-being. We will see organizations put more emphasis on programs that help with that emotional well-being. Those programs, by the way, are probably in place in your organization. They're called employee assistance programs, but they're hard to navigate, right? They're a long list of links and a lot of different phone numbers. So there's a lot of work being done to revamp the type of employee assistance that people need and make it easier to get to those programs. A couple other great questions from the audience that I want to share before we move on. Will your company, meaning your company, Suzanne, give employees the permanent option to work from home if they desire without any retribution, regardless of their direct manager's stance on it? I can't imagine our company would not give people that option to work from home and there would never be retribution from managers for doing that. But we're a different kind of company, you know, to be knowledge workers and, and in professional services, it might be different for other organizations is cultural, where, for example, in our culture, our our operating committee has been remote, never had, you know, hasn't had a headquarters for a long time. But we have companies who you never thought would say work anywhere, anytime, like Twitter. And this is a company who thrived on in-person collaboration in generally one location in San Francisco. So I think where you're finding your voice to challenge the status quo, there's good data to bring to show your organization that flexible work is working and where it's not working, there are other options versus just bring everybody back to work to consider. Another question from the audience. Some companies have already discussed changing salaries based on location. This is in response to the move from high cost areas to low cost. Have you heard of this approach to adjust the employees' expectations? Yeah, we're starting to see companies really look at pay programs related to flex work. Um, and it, I can't, I'm not a comp consultant. I didn't say that in the beginning. So let me just be clear on that. But 
But I do know is you have to look at different tax needs. Some companies also look at the cost of living in that location. If I were in the room uh, with an HR leader or a comp leader, what I would say would be you have to really start looking at the skills. So first look at the skills that you need. What's the premium on those skills? What does it take to do that role or job? And then what would be the comp associated with it versus just a default to a pay program based on location purely? I think there's just a lot of other principles to look at. So half of the companies in a recent survey that we did say the new work requirements will require a hybrid reward model. People are looking at resetting pay levels and do some different things. One other question, and thank you, audience, for such thoughtful questions, is really interesting. We all know that COVID has a greater impact physically, mentally, et cetera, on older people. Yet I hear very mm-hmm. little consideration in DEI discussions about these issues relative to ongoing ageism challenges. What are your thoughts on mm-hmm. that, Suzanne? I think that's spot on. I think that it's important to put yourself in people's shoes. And that's why going out and listening is important. Looking at your different personas that you have around the organization. So someone who um, might be later in their career might be facing different mental health challenges, um, different isolation challenges. And just think, like if it's someone like that, boy, maybe I'll be in that category next year. My son goes to college, hopefully in the fall. But, you know, put me to work, you know, help me overcome that loneliness by helping me be a mentor, you know, giving me a reverse mentor, looking at that loneliness piece. That loneliness trend for people, it's not an ageism thing, but for people has been a trend for some time. And it's, you know, what is it in the uh, the UK? They have a chief loneliness officer. There's a future job out there somewhere. Someone, maybe you want to invent this where, you know, like instead of Uber, you basically have a person who comes, you know, like a talent platform who comes and visits with older people and helps people not be so lonely. So it's it's a future job of just visiting people. Let's go back to our, our next polling question. Do you struggle with work-life balance while working from home? I certainly know how I would answer this. And while how we're would waiting- you I would answer a hundred percent. Yes. I, as, yeah. as you and I were talking earlier, I have an 18 month old, my husband and I both work full-time remote and it's definitely a struggle as, as I think, you know, I host a, a podcast through FEI called balance sheet and I had a great Mm -hmm. guest recently and she's also a young mother. And she said, what's really unfair she felt for her kids was that she and, and her two kids are at home and that's their safe space. That's their home. And that's where they should have access to their parents. And at the beginning of the pandemic, she felt like she was trying to close the door and, you know, keep them out and keep everything real compartmentalized. And she felt it was really unfair for her kids and uh, Mm -hmm. confusing and potentially traumatizing. And, you know, I've thought a lot Mm -hmm. about that since that discussion and something I'm trying to be more cognizant of, but it's definitely a struggle. Mm -hmm. How about you, yeah. Suzanne, personally? Yeah, and it, it has been a struggle. My, well, my son is back in person school. I'm very lucky right now about that right now. 
But while he was home, we live in a small two-bedroom apartment in the city. I would go sometimes a couple weeks without leaving the apartment. And, you know, my, my wife, who has her own business, trying to navigate her business over his Zoom calls and my my work calls, which are 24-7, it's just impossible. But then there's just no energy left for just the simple things, right? So it, it is really been a struggle and then you know every time I turn around you know someone needs to eat (laughs) so I can't take the cooking anymore to be honest exactly but it's it's been hard on a lot of people for a lot of different reasons I've had moms dads people just show up and need a space to just lose it And so I think we have to give people that space. We have to allow people to turn their video off. I did this thing with my team. It was kind of spontaneous, but is anybody on the phone, I wonder, who's old enough to remember you had to pay like, we had to pay like $5 to a charity to wear jeans to work, if you can imagine. So we donated to a charity one day to turn our cameras off for a day. So it gave everybody just the freedom to be off camera, stand up, move around, you know, just operate differently. What did the poll say? So it looks like 60, nearly 68% are struggling with work-life balance while working from home. And I would Mm. love to hear the secrets of those who said no. (laughs) Yeah, I would. I wonder, like, is it space? Is it kids? Is it you just found your rhythm? I will say, though, I mean, you have an 18 month old. I have an almost 18 year old and so many silver linings. I would have been on airplanes all year. And to spend this last year with Aiden, you know, work through college applications to talk about life, to see you help him with his struggles, to be with Christine, to work through that. My wife, I, 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 yeah, I no doubt. Be- That's a great point. I, I do want to talk about that. And maybe this is a good time to talk about, you know, looking forward like what are some of the changes that you predict are here to stay? And what are some of the more short-term changes do you predict? There are so many things that we've come so far with that if we go back, we're going to struggle in a big way. You know, my predictions for the future would be, um, you know, first, I think flexible work is is here to stay. I think workers are going to demand it. Organizations are going to more and more see the benefits of it. I think the second thing that's here to stay and that's going to be of growing importance is rethinking what a job is and and how work gets done. There's been so many buzzwords uh, uh, around future of work, but I do think that seeing this crisis just put an accelerator on that. I think we're going to see an emphasis or greater emphasis on some of those well-being programs related to caregiving, both for elder and for, for children. I think we're going to see constant push on org transformation. Like the only thing for certain is that we are going to continue to disrupt and change. And we've been talking about organizations needing to do that for a while. And wherever you were, something changed. And I think that pace of change is only going to pick up more and more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Let's go to our last polling question. And then we have a bunch of great audience questions that I want to get to. Would you prefer to continue working from home and not return to an office location? For me Mm. personally, I would say that I would 
like a hybrid situation. When I returned from maternity leave, I was going into the office a couple of days a week and working from home a couple of days. And that was working really well for me because I was spending that quality time with with my son, but then I was also getting that break and I was interacting with other adults in person, which as we all know is different than, than interacting remotely. I agree. I'm all about the hybrid approach. Uh, look, I miss my peeps. I miss getting together and collaborating or just that coaching moment as someone comes by and gives me feedback on something or I give them feedback on something. I actually crazily miss the long lines at um, Chopped, which is the other place. <laughs> oh no, are you a line talker? I uh, know, no, I'm just an observer. I love to watch people, see what they're wearing, see okay. what they're talking about. I'm an ethnographer in my, I guess my my next job. And I do think the workspaces can continue to evolve. Like one of the CHROs I work with who has moved to work anywhere, anytime has said, we're not getting rid of our real estate. We're going to create it more as think space. And that's what I need. I need think space when I go into the office, place where I can have either quiet or group together. And that would help me be much more, oh, I guess, productive, but also just fulfilled. Yeah, I hear you. 57% would prefer to continue working from home and not return to office locations. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm getting uh, some great advice for managing with a little one at home in the uh, in the Q&A. So thank you, everyone, for those. And also, I wanted to say someone commented that those of us who are not able to work from home are having a totally different set of issues. And mm. so, you know, not being able to work from home. And so certainly we don't want to discount that experience either. That's right. Someone asked Suzanne, what is a reverse mentor? And I would love for you to explain a little bit about that concept. The reverse mentor has actually been around for a while, um, but what it's the purpose of it for, for us and for other organizations is to help our leaders, senior leaders in the operating committee get to know some of our talent in the pipeline in a very different way. So instead of the usual where the operating committee is meeting with the person to mentor that person. Instead, some of our, our people who are growing in our pipeline got to pick an operating committee member that they wanted to really help, <laughs> help. And um, so the way that the conversations go are, are very different. They're about helping the operating committee for our Black and African-American colleagues know what it's like to sit in their shoes. It's about hearing from that colleague and having that colleague have a safe place to say, you know, this is really not working. And here's why. Here's what I think you should do about it. So it's bridging the gap with real speak in a way that's growing the awareness and understanding of our operating committee versus trying to just promote the advancement of that individual. It works both ways, though, in many respects. Great. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. Suzanne, I think we could have done this for, for much, much longer. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was it was a great discussion. Thank you for your time. Really a fascinating and very important topic. So thank you. Wishing you all um, safety and wellness and hope to see you soon. 